Back in 2014, something really major happened in my life. I met Gretchen Wagner, who is now my wife. Our connection was almost instantaneous as we found common ground in Dharma practice and also being totally geeky and nerdy about a lot of the same things, a love of travel, and most importantly, just having a lot of the exact same values about what it is to be human and how to live a good life. It was on her guidance that I began Everything is Workable. The first episode aired on the 4th of June, 2015, with this opening line. This is Everything is Workable, a series of podcasts and blog posts that examine how every experience, every situation, every moment is an opportunity to work with our mind. My name is Caitlin Hatch, and I'm a creative polymath, which is a nice short way of saying I'm a designer, artist, animator, and published author. My purpose in life is to inspire curiosity, to inspire people to let go of the limited ideas that they have about themselves and their experience. The first 50 episodes of Everything is Workable were mostly just me, talking about a practice and how I applied it in my life. But there was one episode in that batch called Bones and Marrow that featured a guest for the very first time. Since then, I've had many guests, but that first one joins me again today because this is a very special episode. Without her, I would not have gotten here. With gratitude and appreciation to Gretchen Wagner, I bring you the 100th episode of Everything is Workable, where we very suitably speak about some of the catalysts in our lives, things that have marked huge, significant shifts and changes, either gradually or quite suddenly, from spiritual realizations to death to heartbreak. So this is it. This is the 100th episode. Yay! 100 episodes! (laughs) This is my wonderful wife, Gretchen, who has been on Everything is Workable before. I should probably not turn my head away from the microphone. should probably not, though. (laughs) It'll make it annoying when I have to edit this later. This is why we need, like, lapel mics. So today is a special episode. Because it's a special episode, we're going to do things a little bit differently than how I normally do them. Mm -hmm. But I realized that actually I I haven't interviewed you since I introduced the question of what was your experience of moving from I am suffering to there is suffering. Oh, yeah. And that's interesting because the theme of today's show is going to be about catalysts in your life. Mm -hmm. And often there's some sort of catalyst that leads to that. So to begin then... Do you have a story to share of an experience of moving from I am suffering to there is suffering? No. No? Yeah, it's not a good one for me. I'm still <laughs> fixated on I'm suffering. I love you. Okay, so the theme today, though, is catalysts. And why is that a theme? Because it's something I came up with this, this morning. <laughs> but it's also really fitting for the show. Why is it fitting for the show? Why is it fitting for the show, she asks. Thanks for taking my leading question. <laughs> This is terrible. We should start over. No, this is fun. You think it's great to just like start and do this without any preparation. <laughs> I need preparation. No, this is how you roll. It's this fine. is how you roll. No, people think it's adorable. They're uh, like, gosh, those two are really adorable. I can't even. No, nobody's going to listen to this. And like, eh. <laughs> people talking about their stuff. Nobody listens to that. That's all I do. Everything I do is talking to people about their stuff. But the point of this episode and this theme of the catalyst is because now we're on this very exciting hundredth episode 
And I would not have started this if it wasn't for you coming into my life. It was a big catalyst. Mm -hmm. Prior to meeting Gretchen, I was practicing super hardcore in a really isolated way. I spent basically all of my free time meditating and reading Dharma books and then going to an office where while I was at work, I was just constantly like, how can I apply the thing I read this morning or listened to on the talk this morning to this situation here? Uh, So I was very insular in my practice. And then I met Gretchen and you were like, you're very good at speaking about this. You're really good at speaking about the Dharma. You should share that with more people. You would, it would be really cool if you had like a podcast or something. I think that's how it went. Yeah, basically. And I I thought that one of the best ways to evolve your ideas and to be able to articulate them to a wider range of audiences and, as we say in tech, use cases, is to actually talk to other people and engage in the process of the meeting of minds, trying to find mutual understanding and following the thread of where that understanding leads you. That, That will really help you to develop your own style, your own voice, and deepen your understanding. So I've been doing this podcast for four years. Four years? I know, right? Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's a long time. So you started it in London. I sure did. Oh. International <laughs> podcasting. In the early Three episodes. Three countries now. Three countries, true. And in early episodes, I have my cute little English-ish accent. <laughs> so, you know, what you just said about how something like this really challenges your voice and your ability to articulate and speak to a subject. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've known each other now for like four and a half, five years. Coming up on five, yeah. Coming up on five pretty fast. So what have you seen as shifts that have happened or changes in how I speak about the Dharma now? Well, you definitely take this uh, social justice lens um, and apply it to really... Any scope of looking at life through the Dharma instead of simply like what's the wisdom aspects and like how does this relate to core Buddhist teachings? It seems like you're looking at it much more contextually of here are the the times and the social milieu out of which um, whatever body of teaching or sutra emerged. And then there's here's the social context and the history for given commentaries and, tr- and interpretations. And then peeling back the lens of those to say, well, this is clearly like 500 CE proto-India, and this piece here is really 1970s first wave feminist. So um, <laughs> what's the kernel of the, the applicable wisdom, and how does that sit in a much more open interpretation, allowing for a true variety of beings to be present, not just like only males of a certain caste or only white people of a certain class and that sort of thing. So exploring this theme of catalysts, I have a hat here with some paper in it, which I like going with just randomly drawing a subject, but Gretchen wanted to go through and see if there was an order we should talk about them in, which tells you a lot about our different styles in the world. Well, you know, I work in like planning, building, implementing, and architecture. So there is a lot of order and sequences, setting foundations, you know, building frameworks, adding details. Uh, And all that being said, we might switch it up as we go through. (laughs) We'll see. So I'm going to shake up the hat. I don't know if people can hear the paper. (laughs) Adding some sound effects. This is just scratching the hat. (laughs) What have you chosen? spirituality (gasps) that's a good one to start with 
So spirituality as a catalyst. What have been some spiritually catalytic experiences in your mm-hmm. life? Catalytic. Catalytic. Catalyzing events, catalyzing situations, catalyzing people. All those things. For the territory of spirituality. Well, well, there are many. Um, so I'm going to pick an early one, which is a bit unconventional. It wasn't like going on a retreat or going to yoga or listening to the Dalai Lama speak. <laughs> it wasn't anything like that. I was just on a, a high school trip. And for me, a, a high school trip was a, of a certain middle, upper middle class kind of thing, which is to say like it was a high school trip to France. So it, it's not a usual high school trip, but even so... I didn't have that context at the time because my life was fairly circumscribed by the Catholic world I lived in. But anyway, it was an experience I had going to Notre Dame de Chartres in France. And I just remember realizing that the world could be a beautiful place. Growing up in Indianapolis, not everything was pretty. Most things were rather un- unlovely in a Midwestern kind of way. Or in an American, it was built <laughs> sometime in the 1970s kind of way. But in France, I found it was... Just stunningly beautiful in so many different ways. And Notre Dame de Chartres itself was, for my experience at the time, uniquely transfixing and just utter awe of how beautiful a space could be, how cultivated a space could be. Not to show itself off, but to create an opportunity for an experience of awe, wonder, transcendence, glory, God, all those things. I think for anybody who reads my blog a lot, they know that I clearly had a catalyst connection of spirituality when I first came to the Buddhist path. So I'm not going to talk about that because I talk about that all the time. (laughs) Yeah, talk about something new. Or make something up. Who would know? Who would know? (laughs) I would know. There's that time that I met His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. That was amazing. Never met the, the Dalai Lama, but I did eat at his brother's restaurant in Bloomington, Indiana, quite a lot. But yeah, the Dalai Lama used to go to Bloomington, Indiana every summer, and I had many opportunities to go see him back before Richard Gere made him famous. But um, <laughs> but I didn't really have a connection to or relate to what that was. I'm like, food's really good here at the restaurant, but not into that right now. Oh, that makes me think of something. Okay, I've got something. Thinking about what you just said about not really feeling like you had a connection. Mm-hmm. And the first time that I read No Time to Lose, mm-hmm. which is Pema Chodron's commentary on the Bodhicharavatara. Way of the Bodhisattva. Way of the Bodhisattva. And when I picked that book up, I was oh, only a few months into meditation and honestly knew nothing about Bodhisattva. I didn't know what a Bodhisattva was. I didn't know what Shenpa was. I didn't know mm-hmm. any of the buzzwords yet. <laughs> I got savvy in that. And... For those who aren't aware and listening, the Bodhicharavatara is a really classic Buddhist text by Shantideva from 8th century? Or 9th century. 9th century? Can't remember for sure. But anyway, Nalanda University, way back in the day. Super old. And so it's, you know, it's really classic. Yeah. <laughs> Good old Shantideva, also known as, what, Eat Shit Sleeps? That's what his fellow monks called him? <laughs> yes. But his three realizations were of... Um, eating, sleeping, and pooping. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a greatly renowned monk at the time until he delivered this teaching, apparently levitating in the air, and there was like choirs of 
Buddhist angels singing. There was gold falling from the sky. Like it was, it was a kind of big Hollywood production, but also a profound teaching. Mm. Yeah, and it and it is a really profound text. And Pema Chodron is such a skillful teacher for making things that are quite esoteric or really old. <laughs> <laughs> By esoteric, we mean old. Yeah. <laughs> well, esoteric also can. I, I think when I use that term, I'm thinking of uh, kind of a, a sort of a lost spirituality. Obscure, requires interpretation yeah. to understand its context. Yeah, it has um, some cultural context that can seem really irrelevant, actually, in the modern day. But Yeah, like a lot of Tibetan Buddhism, actually. Yeah, and, and yeah, reading out time Like, what is it with all those yaks? <laughs> what do you mean, what is it with all those yaks? There are a lot of yaks in Tibetan Buddhist iconography, and I'm like... Because yaks are really important. I know and that they're... yaks are really important because I studied this shit, but also, like, in context, out of that context, you're just like, what is this ten-armed being? Why are all the freaking yaks everywhere? <laughs> why are it's the just yaks like, hanging out Why does that one have a yak for a head? Like, what? It's very confusing. Requires interpretation. Requires interpretation. And Pema Chodron, as an interpreter, is very good at presenting things that are super old. Did I just become your goofy sidekick on yes, a podcast? Did. How did that happen? Did. I don't know. I'm never your goofy sidekick. <laughs> I'm always like the strong silent one. I know, but this episode's going to be so great now because of it. What the hell? Uh, anyway, point being, when I read No Time to Lose the first time, I had no context for it whatsoever. And I had plowed through three other Pema books prior to that. And when I say plowed through, like I was reading them within a matter of days of getting them and getting the next one because I kind of read like that anyway. I do kind of read like that anyway. But at that time, it was out of a place of desperation and fear and that when I was reading Pema, I felt okay. So I got no time to lose. And I remember starting to read it and be like, whoa, this is like kind of academic. And I don't understand, but I want to understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, I reread that book. I just read it cyclically, actually, mm -hmm. for three times in a row because uh, I really didn't understand it. But it felt like there was something there, and I couldn't name it. There was just something there. And it's so interesting now because I do know all the buzzwords. And I look back on that text and have reread it since with a lot more context and history and... I just think it really speaks to something that I didn't need to have some intellectual knowledge to get a lot out of that text. And I didn't need to have some historical background or study in Tibetan, mm -hmm. Tibetan history to mm -hmm. connect with it. At that point, North Indian history. North Indian history. Yeah. Okay, back to the hat. Next catalyst. <laughs> oh, the sound effect. Yeah. Oh, you just pulled two. <gasps> So, new job or loss of a job. Okay. And death. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> well, loss of a job definitely feels like a death. Which one speaks to you? I've never lost a job. Or at starting a new job. Let's just go with death. <laughs> so, death. Um, catalyzing deaths? Uh, or not necessarily catalyzing deaths, but the catalyst of loss of change let's not get too vague <laughs> everything's changed everything has changed so the whole time i was living and working in australia nobody died that i knew well i was there but as you know on the the day that i arrived in australia my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh and that's a that's a tough one not usually 
when you survive. So from day one, I was grappling with, I'm on the other side of the world, and everything that I've come here to do in a relatively tight timeline now has a, a, a different unexpected pressure on top of it, which is, I may have to drop everything and rush back to Indiana, because I, I could not think of, like, there's no alternative. If my, my mother is ill and dying, I'm going to be by her side. But they caught her pancreatic cancer quite early, so she was in there were like immediate treatment options and it wasn't a death is coming within weeks to months to weeks. It's more like, so we've got a pretty good prognosis, a pretty good surgical outcome, a pretty good treatment schedule. Like things were proceeding apace. So I could just be with it day after day and talk to my mother every day that she was available to talk to just check in with her. So the, the death I was relating to there was the imminence of death, the uh, inescapability of death, the unexpectedness of death, because death is, even when you know it's coming, it comes without warning. I did a lot of practice at that time with the, taking an attitude of the four reminders. Death is inescapable. Suffering is real. Karma is true. And... I can't remember. <laughs> why am I, like... Yeah, why am I forgetting one? Ah. This human life is precious. Yes, thus human life is precious. Yeah, so every time I spoke to my mother, it was uh, a precious opportunity. As she progressed and got a little better, and things kept looking better, like every conversation was less weighty with like, this might be the last conversation. But the, the reality of death there is like, if I'm having this conversation with my mother, and I don't know if it may be the last one, but I also don't think it will be the last one, like what kind of quality of presence do I bring to it? And, and also how do I show up in this conversation for her in a way that's beneficial to her? Because that's probably what I will remember most. Like if I'm looking back after my mother's death, like was I there for her in ways that felt authentic and true and like the best giving of myself? So the catalyst or the catalyzing factor there around death was the, the practice of presence and letting go and um, non-attachment and all those other kind of Buddhisty things. But also just a real frank looking at myself, what's most valuable to me uh, in a relationship and what no longer serves and can I set aside. Even if there are things that I, I, I wish I could resolve with my mother, it's just, it made it very clear. Like, you know, it's just some things aren't worth struggling for because the, the benefit with them is to me small and it's mostly a struggle to my mom. So what's my piece in that? Right. Okay, what about, what for you? I'm aware that for someone of my age, which is to say mid-30s, I've experienced a lot of death that many of my peers haven't, uh, or I've experienced a lot of death at a much earlier age than most of my peers did. And I also was very blessed and fortunate to be raised by mother who did not make death a terrible thing. She acknowledged that it was painful and it was sad, but also that it was natural and that there was a process for grieving and that there were no rules around that process for grieving. I wouldn't say that my family always was super open about it, but at least it was talked about. So there was never like a... I, I can think, like, I've experienced so much death and there's not, like, a specific one that I think of as, like, oh, yes, that was a huge catalyst in my life. But then I, I think about it more in that collective, like, family relational aspect. And I was thinking about how the death of my grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother, it's been really interesting watching the catalyst 
that has come of that with my mom and with my uncle and with the relationship I have with my mom and how we talk about things and what we talk about. We've always been pretty open about a lot of stuff, but the death of her mother felt like a lot of release for everybody. And the context around there is that my grandmother is narcissistic. Uh, She had untreated OCD. She was not a pleasant or easy human being to get along with, and she was not easy to love. But she taught me a lot about love. And I learned a lot about that after she died. Like I thought about it a lot after she died about what I learned about what it is to love somebody like as wholeheartedly as you can when you know that they're they're not going to be capable of returning that. Mm -hmm. And that you can love someone without liking them. And I think that the most interesting thing there was watching the different ways that my mom and her siblings approached that death because this was somebody who abused them as children and yet her death was incredibly traumatic and really quite sad and sudden you know comes without warning and thinking about the experience of what that was like for my grandfather in particular who this was the woman that he loved and he married and he lost her unexpectedly she went in for something routine and never woke up I had to be on life support for several days and it all happened over Christmas on top of that. Like there was just a lot of pain there that was really sad and really difficult. And I thought it was really interesting how my mom was able to hold both her experience and my grandpa's experience. Mm -hmm. And that seemed like it was really transformative for everybody. I don't know. There's like sort of a lightness, I think, in my family. There was a lot of letting go, uh, not to speak for my uncle, but from what my mom shared that he went through a process of realizing that he was never going to get the apology that he kind of had always hoped for and learning to accept that. Yeah. So back to the hat, new job or loss of job. What that one again. Yeah. Well, new job, loss of a job. I think I could actually field that one first. Uh If you don't mind. My very first job out of high school, I always say it was like the dreamiest job that kind of ruined me for working for other people for life because it was pretty amazing uh, on every front. But uh, burnout, burnout is real. I was working with youth and care. And while it was incredibly rewarding, and it was really fantastic, I was helping support kids in advocating for themselves and understanding what their rights were and how to access resources that they might not have been told about as being available. And then also just doing really fun stuff. Like we would get donations of tickets to concerts, and we could take them to theme parks and stuff. And for some kids, like it was the first time that they'd ever been to a concert or it was their first time. Like there was one group we went camping with a bunch of young girls and it was the first time they'd ever left Alberta. Alberta is a pretty big place. That's true. It is a big place, but they hadn't even really left Calgary. Oh, okay. Yeah. In so many ways, it was really rewarding and fantastic. But also I was, I was working with youth and care and the child welfare system functions in a way that doesn't really benefit very many people. It uh, is a very poorly constructed system for providing care and resources and love. Kids in care are dealing with so much trauma. And there wasn't really a system where I worked for debriefing that. And so going on that loss of job, it wasn't about being 
fired or let go, downsized or anything. It was just reaching a point where I didn't have the emotional capacity anymore to be there and recognizing that, recognizing I couldn't show up and be of service and do what needed to be done to support these kids because I couldn't take care of myself. I was like out, I was depleted entirely. And when I realized that I also, you know, I was like 19 and had been working this job for about a year and a half while living at home with no bills. So I had quite a lot of money saved up and it was just a like a, a huge catalyst of a moment of like, I need to do something completely different. And so I booked flights to Australia and went to Australia for six weeks. <laughs> something completely different. Something completely different. But it was a real learning experience for me, especially at that age. Like I look back at it now and I don't think I could have articulated it as well as what was going on, which was that realization that I can't actually do this job well because my own emotional well-being is compromised and so depleted. But that was what was going on. And I recognized it enough that I was like, no, I have to do a drastic change. Like I can't just keep pushing through. So with my current employer, I change roles about once every year and a half, thereabouts. Not all of those have been catalyzing changes per se. They've just been you know, shifts in responsibility or, or work focus or different teams. But some of the work I'm doing right now is, is very specifically about catalyzing change in teams, helping teams to become more effective in their area of focus, to help them connect better with the wider business, with their stakeholders, uh, to deliver what they, they're intended to deliver more efficiently with less toil and less crap and less busy work weighing them down so they can get, get at the, the core of what they do and not have so much struggle in that because work should not have to be so hard, really. And the more I, I engage with the different teams I, I'm working with on the, that process, the, the more I think about the necessity of change in the workplace and what opportunity there is there for individual drive to pursue how that actually changes for their career. And I think the the problem with traditional top-down uh, or organizational strategic change is that it, it is top-down. It's coming from as the individual experiences it from the outside or as the team experiences it from other people with more power. So the, the catalyzing opportunity is engaging in that, making choices, offering your voice, your opinion, saying what you will and won't do, learning how to, to say no, and even raising the specter of maybe I don't want to be on this team and voting with your feet. Because not every... Well, in all the teams I've been with over my career, like they've all evolved and changed over time, um, and their constituents change over time. Like Change is inevitable, so... I think we have, at least in the in the tech sector, more opportunity to make choices about where we want to be, how we want to be, who we want to work with, how we want that environment to be set up to support us. I think that opportunity is in front of people right now, and it's it's difficult to see it because that level of autonomy is not usually offered. And I don't know, that may not be true. Like it might just be the bend I bring to it because I I get to work with very high levels of autonomy and self direction. <laughs> And my own interpretation. And as yet, nobody has said that I'm wrong or disagreed with me. They just kind of let me keep running with it. So maybe I get to be a catalyzing factor in this case. Definitely a catalyzing factor for me. <laughs> Back to the hat. Okay, there's only two left in here. Uh huh. And I think that we should do them in an order. <laughs> <laughs> the order that they come out in? No. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, heartbreak with samsara. Okay, you have to define samsara if you're going to use a word. 
Okay, samsara is the truth of the human condition. Um, a lot of interpretation gets really literal and just say samsara means suffering. But samsara is the entirety of the human condition. It's good, bad, and in between. It's like a, a, cycle, a circle. <laughs> you travel up, you travel down. You travel up, you travel down. You're all around the center. And the problem of the center is that it's a little off-center. So like, even as it's going up, like it wobbles quite a lot. Related to that is dukkha which also means suffering. <laughs> but literally it means like bad axle hole. I always thought that dukkha was the suffering of suffering, which is the like resistance to pain. Well, that's a like a, an interpretation in a specific context when you're talking about the different kinds of suffering. Mm. But it's just suffering. Anyway, so samsara, the reality of human condition, the heartbreak with samsara is simply like looking at the whole human situation and realizing that it, although change is part of it. The whole situation itself is not going to change. I'm never going to attain a perfect happiness, a lasting contentment, probably never an ultimate liberation. Like I'm always going to be in this hot, sticky, gross human mess of um, a body that, that's aging and subject to disease, a world that's full of chaos and horrendously bad politicians, living under capitalism, which is always about extracting more than it puts in. Like, I want the world to be perfectible and so much better than it is. The The kind of vision of a world that I was sold you know, under Catholicism was um, God's perfect harmony. And it's just not true. So the, the heartbreak that I experience with samsara is that all that I, I might hope and strive for, those things are temporary, passing, perhaps unattainable. And that doesn't say that I, I'm going to stop striving. It's just that I have to be far less attached to the outcomes of that striving. The important thing is to try and to eke out what little corner of improvement I can for as many people as I can for as long as I can. And to really check myself when the, the bigger vision keeps coming up. And I'm like, yeah, it would be nice to make the world perfect. Or it would be nice to like at least make the United States a better place. But I've only got so much power. I've only got so much reach. And I need to not beat myself up with what I can't personally accomplish by myself in this lifetime so is it sort of like heartbreak in this case is like a catalyst for like a sense of being able to let go and just relax into what you are capable of yeah like stop romanticizing ideal scenarios or idealism generally and start living in what's possible so heartbreak's a massive catalyst in my life yeah i bet you've blogged about it I have vlogged about have it. Have you talked about it on your podcast before? I don't think I have. Really? Yeah, I don't think it's come up. Um, so early episodes for my hardcore fans who've been listening for the full Hi, four years. <laughs> Hi, all the moms. Thank you to my moms, all of you. My birth and marriage and choice. <laughs> you know who you are. In the early episodes, it was just like me talking about a practice and how I applied it in my life. And uh it's actually interesting that I can't think of anything where I talked about heartbreak. Mm. But uh, yeah, I've uh, been through two pretty epic end of relationship <laughs> experiences. And both were really significant catalysts in my life. The first one when I was super young and I thought I discovered heartbreak uh, was actually why I ended up moving to the UK. That was huge. Mm -hmm. Right, like um, the context being that you know a very very small queer community, and it was 
kind of toxic and inescapable. And no, the- apparently not, because you escaped. <laughs> apparently. Well, it was inescapable in the context of the city. So, yes, okay, yeah. the only way to escape it was to go very far away, 7,000 miles away across the ocean. <laughs> Yeah. Um, And that was huge. You know, that was like a big pivot in my life. And I was thinking about that as well, actually, like what I was saying about the job, the big pivot there was because I went to Australia, I performed in drag for the first time. And then I came back and performed in drag again. And then I started fake mustache, which is now Canada's longest running drag king troupe. Fun facts about Caitlin. <laughs> uh, I haven't done drag in years, but uh, Fake Mustache is still alive and well. And if you're ever passing through Calgary, you can check them out and go to a show. Uh, so, yeah, Heartbreak sent me to the UK and I lived there for six years. It was a big chunk of my adult life to date. And it was there that I had my second massive heartbreak. Mm-hmm. And that one propelled me more into my spiritual path. That one really connected me with what it meant to truly walk the walk, to not just read the teachings and find comfort in them, but to apply them to my life so I could embody them and mm-hmm. actually be nourished by them mm-hmm. and grow from them. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for the last one? I guess I'm going to have to be. Ta-da! Love. Love as a catalyst. Well, met you. <laughs> that was unexpected. I have often thought, actually, we could just do an episode about how we met. (laughs) Then somebody's going to steal that story and be like, we should get the screenplay rights. Okay. (laughs) Because it's just that great. It is a good story. Well, I'm thinking about how I'm doing this chaplaincy training. Mm -hmm. And that part of the chaplaincy training has been coming up with my North Star precept. Mm. So the instruction around that is your North Star precept is about connecting with what you stand for. In the words of Dr. Cinder Rushton, it's very easy to say what you stand against, but it's not always so easy to say what you stand for. And that orientation is really interesting to think about. And so uh, the idea behind having a North Star precept is that it's something that you can use to ground yourself in your integrity and your practice and remind yourself why the F you're even doing this thing. Why the F? Why the F are you even doing this? (laughs) Why do I keep getting up and doing the work that I'm doing, which for anybody who's in any kind of social justice work or any kind of realm of uh, diversity and inclusion development and stuff, it can be really disheartening. Yeah. And what I realized is that my North Star precept is you are worthy of love because everything I do, I do because love. Yeah. And I know that sounds really cheesy, doesn't it? It does sound really cheesy, Caitlin. Why don't you tell us more? No, I think we should talk about... Uh, let's talk about why we why it sounds cheesy. Because capitalism? Because capitalism. Because patriarchy. Because patriarchy. Because love is not supposed to be a, a, a value that you share outside of a limited, socially acceptable circle. Usually family, close friends, comrades in arms. That's about it. But love as a globally applicable value is, um, well, there's shit tons of precedent for it in the religion and spirituality space throughout the aeons, but not so much in, in the modern world that we live in where religion and spirituality are either yet another way to make money, whether it's mega churches or preachers or heck, even yoga studios. Yep. 
<laughs> Everything gets commodified, you know? So where does love fit in? Well, this is why I really like thinking about Sharon Salzberg's teachings. And she asked this really good question, and I'm paraphrasing here. Does it feel weak to be loved? Hmm. Does it feel weak to be loved? And I think that's the thing is like there's a sense that love is like uh, soft and... Oh. Then we can make that whole like tangent off to Brene Brown and vulnerability and, and all of that. And yeah, love is not not a weak emotion, but it is. it touches our most vulnerable places. Mm-hmm. And that might be the core of why it is um, so circumscribed, constrained, limited in its value. So then love as catalyst. Love as catalyst. I started this podcast because you came into my life. And I knew I was in love with you a week after I met you. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, I knew it on the first day. <laughs> but I am older than you, so I can catch slow on starter. quicker. <laughs> I just catch on quicker. I've got more experience. <laughs> so what have been some key experiences of how love has been a catalyst for you? I think some of the um, the biggest changes I've made in my life, the the choices I've pursued have been out of a a decision to love myself more and and to go with what is the most loving thing for myself. That's meant moving across the country. That's meant walking into the unknown. That's meant ending significant relationships, taking big risks, um, taking big risks because I was worth it. And um, for me, that's always been also a bit of a crisis because how I was raised in my Midwestern Catholic context and my family and the kind of norming I saw in the town I grew up in as a Gen Xer, like there, there wasn't space for weird folk like myself. So to choose for myself requires a great deal of courage and tenacity against those things that I had to internalize to survive. So whether that's homophobia or misogyny or gender dysphoria or <laughs> any other things that I, I've learned under patriarchy, capitalism, etc. White supremacy. White supremacy. White supremacy's been good to me, though. Mm. Sad to say. Except for that whole cutting you off from your humanity. humanity. Oh, yeah, right. But I didn't need that humanity anyway. I could just make money. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was capitalism speaking. <laughs> yeah, the, the choice to love myself meant moving towards a space of risk openness, vulnerability, and away from those value systems that by setting up walls and definitions that kept a, an idea of me safe, kept a very limited version of me safe. I had to go out and that openness of possibility and then go out there in the world and encounter difference, whether it was race, class, gender, ethnicity, national origin, religion, like everything. Uh, the choice to love myself gave me the opportunity to learn how to love the world. Visit CaitlinSCHatch.com to find out more about everything that I do in the world, to read my blog, buy a book, and check out my art gallery. You can also become a patron or leave a tip to help support my work and practice. I'm incredibly grateful to my many patrons, without whom I could not make this the focus of my life. Immense appreciation goes to Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Minita Budgen, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, Harry Pugh, Annika, Jennifer Harkness, Katie Bredbeck, Laura Malkern, Michelle Puckett, and Sierra Love. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of More Music. 